It was early 2019 when SoftBank's official landing in Latin America marked the largest ever technology fund focused exclusively on the region. LATAM was breaking its own records in terms of capital injection, and the firm had already tested the waters with a few juicy checks. So SoftBank committed $5 billion to the new Latin American fund, about the same as all the region's venture investments in 2017 and 2018 combined. One of the people leading it was Paulo Passoni. But after three years as SoftBank's managing partner in Latin America, he felt it was time to move towards different ambitions. In April 2022, Paulo announced he was leaving SoftBank with Shu Nayada, SoftBank's other LATAM managing partner, and together they would do their own thing. All in all, Paulo has a solid 15-year experience investing in all business stages in Latin America. While on garden leave and building the next steps, he remains active on the board of companies like Vitex, Quinto Andar, Creditas, and Logi. Paulo and I talk about his plans for the future, at least what he can share for now, SoftBank's effects on the overall LATAM ecosystem, what he learned from brilliant founders. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. We were just talking about you're supposed to be on garden leave here, and uh, you go to LinkedIn, and it says 315 days to go. So I'm going to begin with 315 days to what? So what can you share with us about, about the future? No, absolutely. Uh, first, thanks for having me in, in your podcast. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours, as you know. Thank you. Second, our intention is to replicate what we did before. What, what is it? Growth equity fund, not early stage. Helping companies scale. Helping companies get to the next level, which is uh, get ready to go public and, and be independent company with sustainable cash flows and so on. So uh, we are going to probably, at the beginning, focus more on... Uh, later stage companies, uh, even within growth equity. I think the public markets are actually super attractive right now and likely to get more attractive because this inflation situation is going to get worse. So that's going to cause a regime change of multiple compression that we might have to live with for the next decade. It might not just be two years. It might be a regime change that impacts multiples for you know, a whole cycle. And there is a lack of supply of stuff. Um, the flip side of ESG is that we, uh, it's harder to get things out of the ground. And that's just the reality. And we're going to, that's not a bad, you know, scenario for Latin America because we're commodity producers. So that tends to equate with a good cycle for Latin. But for the world economy, it might be a tough uh, period of time, even though, you know, I don't put a lot of emphasis on my macro views. I've learned over time to have strong conviction micro views, not macro views. Macro views, they change more loosely, uh, but that's kind of how I'm seeing the world right now. It's definitely a crazy time, and I stay away from macroeconomic predictions in general because it's, it's always, but you definitely feel a, a shift, and I want to get into that a little bit, and I've got a few questions around how you're perceiving that. First, I want to just talk about a little bit about the past. You spent three years at SoftBank, and so you oversaw the Latin America fund and the $5 billion in investments it brought into the region. Do you think that the LATAM ecosystem is, is different now after this massive SoftBank injection of capital, and, and how? For sure it's different. <laughs> I would say a much bigger number of funds were created in Latin America 
especially on the early stage side, not on the growth side, but especially on the early stage side. You have global investors much more interested in the region, and some of the entrepreneurs from Latin America are capable of uh, finding those investors and getting their backing. You have more talent going into startups. Uh, of course, now that talent might be a little bit worried because it will be a rocky period of time in the next few years, and we're going to see exactly who, who really has a belief to work in a startup or not. It's not for everyone. Um, but for sure, like the most talented people from many schools or any master's programs, they, they think about starting a company. They don't always do it, but they seriously consider. And I remember when I was graduating, that was a super impossible dream. That was like, how are you going to even get going? Who invests in companies in Latin America? Uh, it, was, it was very rare at the time. Now you have a whole ecosystem. So I'm very proud of being able to help in the creation of that ecosystem, in the highlighting the fact that there is no real difference between companies in the U.S. and LATAM in terms of potential of value creation. Um, you know, you when you apply technology to solve problems of everyday life, uh, as long as the problems are big, you can create big companies. And Latin America has a, a, a real big plethora of, of big problems in education, healthcare, in banking, you name it, we have big problems to solve. So I think that's what creates, creates the basis for uh, awesome startups. I remember back in 2013 or 14, probably remember this in Brazil, there was a lot of international investors came in. Uh, I remember hearing the phrase helicopter VC because they kind of would just fly in and, and kind of fly out. And clearly... After that, there was there was a pullout of a lot of those inter international investors. They didn't kind of consistently invest over a long period of time. Obviously, there's a few exceptions there. What are your thoughts in terms of this cycle? What does it mean for the international investors? Are they going to be scared? Uh, is this this kind of cycle? Are, are we going to see more just like a flight to safety? And and how do you anticipate global investors looking at the region? Yeah, great question, Brian. I worked in global firms before. I started my career at Eaton Park and then Third Point. And I have to say, say to you that if you don't have someone dedicated to Latin America or a team dedicated to Latin America, it's very easy to forget about it in tough moments. It's, it's an afterthought. Uh, the, that's why there's a big difference between GA and Riverwood who have dedicated teams or even Warber or an Advent versus funds that don't, versus funds that only have a global team that sometimes does Latin America, sometimes does not, right? So I, I'm a big believer that you need to treat the region as a separate thing. It's earlier in the development, so you should expect different types of founders, different types of teams. Um, if you just compare it to, you know, U.S. or other parts of the globe, it might, not, it might give you a feeling that it's not as exciting, although it is, because... There is more to uh, create. So, you know, I, I think in moments like this, flight to quality, as you said, is the name of the game. Uh, those uh, investors will disappear and then they will come back probably at the late cycle of the U.S. That's usually when I've seen people come to the Latin America because there's nothing else to do in your home market. So you end up dedicating more time to Latin America because it's the only thing left that will generate some juice and you know, boost your returns. And that usually correlates with the end of the cycle. 
On the founder side, thinking about, we've recently seen massive layoffs in big Brazilian startups. You're on the board of, of some of them. What can you tell us about the common points that have led to those layoffs and what kind of impacts can we expect in the ecosystem? Yeah, first of all, I have a lot of empathy for those who have lost their their jobs and are worried and those who are left who are worried. I, I understand the anxiety of, of losing your job when the economy is not looking so good. But don't worry. And some of the best entrepreneurs in the world were uh, created by layoffs. Uh, you think Michael Bloomberg, who created Bloomberg, uh, was laid off from, from his job and that's why he created Bloomberg. And there are many examples in the startup land as well. So just believe in your, in your skills, believe in yourself and keep going. These, these things have nothing to do with you in particular. It's more a, a necessity to survive. So the, the modus operandi right now is survival. And survival means not running out of cash. So what happens in a moment like this? If you were growing 100% a year and you were hiring for next year's operations, that's why you hire so many people. As you reduce the speed of growth to something like 50, you're going to have some slack. You don't need as many people anymore. So first, you have to adjust for that. Second, you have to adjust for your cash burn and how many months of, of, of cash you have in hand. You don't want to be caught requiring cash in the middle of a big global recession. That's not a good idea. Even though the recession is not a certainty right now, it's very likely. So you don't want to die before you make it. So if, uh, in fact, for everyone, if companies are not taking those actions, I would be worried. I'll be worried they're going to hit the wall and the company will cease to exist overnight. That's a much worse outcome for 100% of the employees. <laughs> so uh, hang tight, understand this uh, aspect of companies that companies need to survive to then thrive. And the moment right now is for survival, it's not for thriving. I agree on the, the concept of like, obviously it's never good to lose your, your job and that can be stressful. I, I think back to when I was running my company and we were in Colombia and I had to close the office in Colombia to decide to focus on Brazil and I let go a bunch of people and I was like terrified of that. I felt terrible. And the, the amazing thing about where we are today, even different than then, is that the tech ecosystem can probably absorb a lot better. I mean, Latitude is hiring aggressively right now. I think that there's a bunch of other startups that have raised capital and are in a strong position and they're combing through those lists of, you know, really, it's not an adverse selection. These are people that are really good for the companies. So I think that the ecosystem will absorb that uh, with the robust kind of nature of the, the companies that exist. And then in my case, back in the day, even when there wasn't a robust infrastructure, these people ended up working at uh, Amazon, Mercado Libre, and, and Google anyway, and Facebook. So where we are today is kind of a different moment. And like you said, opportunistically, there's going to be some founders that are created in this process because they've had that exposure in working at a startup, whether it's a high growth company like Quinto, and then they carve off and start their own thing. So that's definitely something that's inevitably going to happen. Definitely. And I would say it's a natural shift from growth equity to earlier stage. I think there will be more opportunities for employment in earlier stage in growth equity, just because growth equity is where cash burn is most problematic. You, you, and you require a lot of capital if you're in growth equity. So if you need capital, it's going to be tough. That's why you take those measures ahead of the problem. 
so that you don't need the, the, the capital in the middle of the storm. But in the earlier stage, uh, the capital is flowing, mostly because those bets by investors are mostly idiosyncratic bets, meaning that they, they really depend mostly on the ability to launch a product well and find product market fit. They don't depend necessarily on, uh, on scaling or anything like that. It's, it's very early, and investors, correctly so, keep investing in those companies, even though valuations are going to start to trickle down a little bit, but the capital will flow uh, to the earlier stage more fluidly then it will flow to the growth stage. The problem with the growth stage is that public companies are extremely attractive, much cheaper than private private growth. And why? Because the growth companies were set, valuations were set in 2021, which will be probably one of the worst vintages ever. And the valuations are mostly wrong. Right? So how do they how do they come down? Either you grow a lot into your valuation, so if you tripled, maybe you can deserve the same valuation. <laughs> or you're gonna do a down round, you don't wanna do a down round. So that that's the irony of the situation. Some founders probably need to take the medicine, right? I think it's hard to take the medicine. Like when you're when you're the psychological aspects, I remember I had faced with uh being in a moment where we weren't able to raise the capital we wanted to, the valuation we expected. And it's hard for a founder to actually, in your mind, you're, if you've doubled in size and you're growing and you still have to take a haircut from the last valuation, like that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, what's your advice for founders that are kind of in that position? Yeah, and how do you reconcile that? My advice is the fastest, the better. Because more people are going to be in your situation. So you grab the money as quickly as possible if you can, and you make compromises as quickly as possible if you can. Because we're not at the bottom of this cycle yet, unfortunately. We're going to be at the bottom when governments panic. Have you seen governments panicking yet? No. So I don't know how long it's going to take for governments to panic. Maybe six months, maybe a year. But during that journey, it will get worse, not better. So be pragmatic. Talk to your board, talk to your investors, be pragmatic on expectations and raise the capital sooner than later. What's your comment on this? I, I'm, I'm on a WhatsApp group and of course, like lots of founders talking and like founders love to say things like, oh, of course, investors are talking about how bad it is because this favors them and then they get to come in at better pricing. But the reality is like things were overpriced. And so what is your response when founders like, because obviously this general advice serves investors because it, especially in the private markets where like the pricing is determined by, by you, what's your general like reaction to that? Is that just nonsense? And, or is it just like, cause I don't think investors are like setting up companies. It's just, it's a function of the market and the yeah. public markets is like a perfect reflection of what should be happening in the private markets. Look, I, I believe you studied psychology, right, Brian, if, I, if I'm correct? Kind of. I, I was psychoanalyzed a lot as a kid. Right. <laughs> so, look, there is an intersection be, between psychology and economics that treats problems like this. And this kind of uh, availability bias, what does that mean? Founders only know the last 10 years because they're young. And in the last 10 years, every sell-off has been followed by a, re, a sharp rebound. But this is different. Inflation has never been 8%, 9%, and stubborn. And the rate of real interest rates required to change that is very high. So we are likely facing something like 2000. And they weren't around in 2000. They don't know what it was in 2000. It took two years to get going again. 
right? I'm not saying for certain we're going to have 2,000, but it looks very likely. So it's not that investors are trying to game you. It's that they are seeing the first inning of the 2,000 cycle. First inning, not second, not third, like first, maybe second inning. So this is a game of patience for investors. Because if you're an investor, you know you had a bad vintage last year. If you have a bad vintage again in the following fund, you don't have a business anymore. The next vintage has to be really good to offset the last vintage, which was really bad. Simple as that. So I don't think investors are playing games with any entrepreneurs at all, at all. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I agree with that. One thought and question, and I know that you're officially in a non-compete, so you're not actively fundraising, even though Shu can probably fundraise because he's your partner. What is the narrative in the minds of LPs, given the current kind of backdrop? I mean, is, is this something that obviously makes it harder to raise capital because there's less money? And what is the counter argument to that? And, and how do you envision when you do actually go out to fundraise? Uh, and assuming we're in a, a down cycle like this, who are the investors that are writing checks as LPs? Perfect. The great question. And this, this is going to explain why we're going to have a tough problem, right? So there are several buckets of, of LPs. The first bucket that has been very good to this industry is the institutional bucket, endowments, pension funds. They were fully loaded into venture and growth. They're overly exposed to venture and growth. They need to recalibrate. So they don't, they're not in the mood of like putting more money, even though they should because returns are going to be excellent. Because they have a, a, a portfolio management problem right now. So second bucket is the sovereign wealth funds of commodity producing nations. Those people are in heaven because they're having excess cash flow right now and the rest of the globe got cheaper. So they are in great shape. If they allocate capital well in the next, call it two years, they're going to make a killing for their nations, a killing, because they're going to be the gaming town for capital. And lastly, you have family offices, rich people. There are two types of you know, family offices. The one that were concerned about what we're going to you know, go through right now and they prepared and they allocated accordingly and the ones that are getting caught into this mess. So I would say the ones that were concerned, they're going to be in a great position also to make excess returns and great, great profits in the next cycle. So in, in general terms, the, the capital sources uh, will change. So funds that will have to adapt and change a little bit who they get capital from as a result of what I just said, which is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. The good funds will always have money. Don't take me wrong. Like, like you know, the top quartile funds in the U.S. And, and Latin America will always have access to capital because they have great track records and real partners. But I'm talking about the marginal capital for the rest will come from different places. And that process takes time. Therefore, you, you'll see capital flowing again, perhaps in 18 months, 24 months from now. Shifting gears, you've said before that there's no exceptional companies with bad teams. What makes for a good team and what are you looking for when you're evaluating a team? It's First, let me admit that it's an art, more than science. But you know what I like to do, Brian? I like to ask people, like, tell me your story. Like, where'd you grow up? What struggles you went through? What were you like a child? Did you play sports? Did you start a company when you're young? What did you do that was special? What, what did you do that sets you apart? 
What's your story? I like I like asking that question a lot because it tells what kind of human being you're you're dealing with. And founders are unique. They're extremely obsessive. They're extremely results oriented. They are, they're a special kind. They're not not everyone should be a founder. If if you don't have those traits, join a great founder. Join a great idea. That would be a fun ride. That would be a fun ride. I recommend that ride. But if you don't have that that intensity, then you shouldn't be a founder. If you have the intensity, you should be a founder. <laughs> so that it's kind of like that. End of the day, that's what you're trying to answer. Uh, and founders have to be very holistic. They have to be good at storytelling. They have to be good at numbers. They have to be good at operations. They have to be good. At, they have to be good at a, a lot of different skills at once. And finding people that are are well rounded like that is hard. Of course, they should always have their superpower, right? Like someone is going to be better at sales. Somebody is going to be better at technical aspects. That's all natural. But to run companies successfully and scale them, you got to be really well rounded. That's kind of rare. And you can still create a company if you're not well rounded, by the way. But you got to know when it's time for you to go, right? You got to you got to realize I can take it to a certain level. But from stage 100 to a billion, I need somebody else. You know, like you, you, some founders are extremely self-aware like that. I know a few that tell me I'm a serial entrepreneur. I can take it from zero to 100 and then move on. That's, that's great. That's fine. It's great, actually, because nobody's going to have to have a hard conversation with you. And some founders are actually designed to go all the way. But I don't know what percentage of them are designed to go all the way. 10 percent, 15 percent. It's not 100%, it's not 90. <laughs> so this is this is something that is very important for founders to realize. You can still create a lot of value, you can still have an impact. You don't necessarily have to run your company at some late stage of the game. Plus being a public company CEO is very different, very different life. The people don't realize what it means to be a public company CEO. So th- those are all things that go into this idea of figuring out who's great, who's not. And also, who's, the people who are great usually surround themselves by great people. So you go to that second level, third level, and they have amazing people because you know that's just how life goes. Good people want to work with good people. Yeah, 100%. It's going the distance is uh, it's a quite, quite a different experience when you're trying to find product market fit to when you're you know, scaling with 1,000 people. That's, it's quite the different and some founders can evolve and you know some founders can bring in an amazing COO or someone else to supplement them but typically uh, it's not the same company that you started when you've scaled to that size don't take me wrong Brian I want to be founder friendly always okay I always favor the founder but favoring the founder sometimes means convincing the founder <laughs> to hire a CEO <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean or to pass yep. on the baton to somebody else in the team that's, that's also being founder-friendly. Now, the, our industry, the VC industry, was disrupted by a few funds that uh, created the idea that all founders can go, you know, all the way. And that ain't true. That ain't true. <laughs> Statistically, not true. Empirically, not true. So anyway, so take a company like Snowflake. It's a great story, right? Like, great story of a founder saying, okay, I need somebody else here. And yet, Snowflake's an amazing company. has bright future, even though it's down a lot of the market. I mean, it's still going to be a great company. Yeah, I think that self-awareness is really important. And think that having clarity on what you're good at, what you like, and being able to ask for help when you need it is something that 
I, I recall as you know, building my company, you know, you, your role changes. You're the founder, you're the CEO, and you're the chairman or the you know the chairperson, and. Those are three different kind of roles. When you're when you're founder, it's all about the culture. CEO is all about the short-term results. Chair is about like the long-term vision and like where you're headed and how you're going to disrupt yourself in the future. And so these are these are different things, and and they become in the beginning they kind of all mesh together. But as the company becomes a real business, those things become focused responsibilities. Absolutely, I agree with you 100. percent so SoftBank, you had a nice stint there, and it's well known for being long-term in, in its approach. What did you learn about it, the philosophy of patient capital and how it applies specifically to Latin America, which, as we both know, is known for its historical instability? Absolutely. I would say, first, um, long-term thinking, long-term capital should not rhyme with over-investing companies, giving them too much capital, and, and don't worry, I'll invest more if you need more. Like, if you're an entrepreneur, never put yourself in a position where your investors control your company because you're always new capital, right? That's not good for you. Not good for you. Because you may face a market like we're facing right now, and then you lose control of the situation. Not lose control of the company, but of the situation. So thinking long-term is actually thinking that you always have this flexibility, meaning you, you can always control your destiny within a four-year horizon, especially in the growth side. And if you always control your destiny, at least for the next four years, if capital becomes available, then you, you do something else. You, do, you take an, an additional move, you grow into a new market, or you, you go more aggressive. But only if you have the capital or not, you don't do it counting that you're always going to have the capital. So that's one of the lessons of the last three years that I think is important. Um, second, the um, I think as an investor, you gotta be prepared to back a company multiple times. It, it, it won't be one check and that's it, right? Um, it, it will probably have to reserve uh, for your inside your fund or mentally for backing them a few more times before they get there. And oftentimes people forget to do that. <laughs> uh, if you are the founder, on the other hand, what do you want? You want to diversify your cap table. Because if somebody cannot keep going with you, you got to replace by an, another investor in capital, the cap table that can keep going. On the other hand, you don't want everyone to be tiny. You don't want investors who only have 1%, 2% of your company because that's truly relevant for them to keep backing you. So I've learned that the sweet spot for an investor in a cap table is between 10 and 15%. Uh, and I used to believe it was more like 25 to 30. And I, I've changed my mind a little bit. Invest, founders are better served with a bunch of investors who have like 10 to 15%, at least four or five, so that if one of them has a problem, you're not overly, overly reliant on them for capital in the future. Uh, and on top of that, you gotta always remember the founders, the, the investors have a problem kind of pricing their own rounds in the future. So you always gotta leave room for a new investor to price around. Because when a new investor prices around, it's clean and the existing investors have a much easier time justifying that the valuation is fair, you're not marking up your books and things like that. So you gotta always keep a roster of potential partners, investors, 
and tap one every every round kind of thing, right? Uh, and so those are the lessons a little bit I think are important. The other one is it, it's something that I saw and I don't know how to solve it, Brian, which is I know that AI will be super important. I know that crypto-enabled um, tools and solutions will be part of every company, but they don't make a, they don't make a difference in the short term with companies. They don't. So right now, every company is focused on killing a lion today, not killing a lion three years from now, five years from now. So how do you create that kind of research and development space within companies so that they don't get kind of overrun by a new company three, four years later that is purely based on those tools, right? So I don't know how to solve that because I try to push for that in every company I participated in, and the appetite for doing such things is very low. And I worry a lot about that because then I, I'm a little bit paranoid, as you can see. So I'm, I, I'm, I worry that if they don't start making those long-term investments, somebody else will come and eat their lunch, Uh, and that's something that crosses my mind all the time. And, and the incentives are not there for company for companies to spend a lot of money in, in things that won't create immediate solutions. So that, that's uh, that's one that I, I, I is a conundrum for me. I don't know yet how to solve it. I think it favors founders that you think like that because as a founder, you want to build something really long term. I think there's capital restrictions or in the early days. You know, I think if I look at like me building my new company versus me building Viva, we started Viva bootstrapped by Azunias, como se fala en portugués, like barely could get the money. And that, that basically didn't allow us to think long term about what we were doing because we suffered so badly. That's something that is a big advantage as a second time founder, et cetera. So I think it's great that investors are encouraging that because that puts the founder in a better position to be able to, when you think long term, you play a different game, right? You're not playing you know, on the quarterly game, you're playing the decade game, which is how actual returns end up becoming interesting if you think about building long term value. An example, right? Like, yeah. let's say you're trying to innovate in a certain sector and the The players in that sector are mostly analog. So what do you do? I see this all the time. You create a, a front-end that is digital, but the back-end is all analog. And as a company grows, it has to grow the analog side just like the incumbents. Not, not, not a big difference. You hire a lot of people. And then you have a scalability problems all the time. And you can see that in the revenue per employee. The revenue per employee in all startups should be going up, not down <laughs> or stable. They should be going up. So are you setting up yourself for revenue per employee to go up over time or not? Right? So that's something that I, that I try to pay attention to a lot. Yeah, that's a metric that I think that like only more mature companies, I remember when we started looking at that and it was a kind of a game changer when you, when you started thinking about your business in that context. I want to ask a question related to the cap table. Just had a call with a founder. She shared with me that Obviously, they're in a tighter spot because of the current environment, and they're, you know, it's, it's not as easy to go out and raise. And when you're raising capital, the idea of like a top-tier investor is like something that founders talk about, like, I want a top-tier investor. But really what that translates to is you want someone that's going to be able to help you when you're in a position. And if you have a bunch of newer funds that don't have the capital or don't have the track record yet, they're not deep, they don't have a lot of dry powder oftentimes, and then in moments like this, When you do need the feared like bridge or whatever, in this case, they were like, hey, I have one investor who's well capitalized 
and then I have four or five investors that are not well capitalized. That's a kind of a sticky situation. So should founders, when they're raising capital from investors, should they be asking, hey, how much dry powder do you have? Where, like th- those kind of questions. Do founders ask those questions to you as an investor? And do you think it's a good question to ask? 100% is a good question to ask. <laughs> I think it's 100% fair to ask that question. I think uh, the, founder, the funds that cannot follow through in multiple rounds, uh, I think you should only get them if they're really special. If the venture partner in the fund will really help you in certain specific thing that will make a difference, and they will, they're really committed to you, right, in the beginning of your company, um, you know they won't be there for the B, the C's, but at least you you got something out of it. It would be uh, a waste to open space in your cap table for that investor that doesn't do that, plus doesn't have the capital to follow through. That's that's a that's a problem. And some of the best Series A funds now have an opportunity opportunity fund that can follow through, right? And then sometimes you'll get to let the growth guy in with a small stake, so that they can get to know you, and then they can grow their appetite towards you. That's also clever. Uh, so you gotta manage the process not through the lens of that that round that you're raising, but through the lens of multiple years of partnership. Um, so I think that's kind of really important. And the other thing you, I would ask is, are these people going to be around Latin America forever or not? <laughs> that's another question. Like, you know, like are, are they doing this as a hobby for Latin or are they really here? Are they really committed to Latin America? Because that makes a difference as well. I think it, likelihood you can deal with the same people in some shape or form is higher if you're dealing with people that bet their careers in Latin America. I mean, that's uh, obviously speak on my own book on that, but like I, I believe in that as well. So I, I contrast everything I just said with the fact that you also got to be pragmatic. We're in a tough market, you get the money you can, and you move on. Don't be too picky. <laughs> you know, somebody offers you money, we're in, a, we're in a tough place, get the money, put it in the bank, get going. Don't be too cute. Yeah, I... Over-optimizing is not what you want to be doing in a, in a current state like this. You mentioned crypto, blockchain. I, I know you're excited about that in Latin America specifically. Talk a little bit more, expand on the potential when it comes to innovations around crypto and blockchain. Where is that potential as you see it? What are some of the challenges in, from your perspective? So right now we're full of challenges. Why? Because we're in the infrastructure phase of Web 3.0 or crypto. We're trying to figure out what protocols can handle massive amounts of information and data uh, without breaking, without security concerns. It's not easy. As you can see, several protocols have had massive problems recently, right? So I would say we're in the face, we're, we're really early days. And then the amazing applications that we're going to have are going to come even you know, later. It's hard to even imagine what they will be. I can see a few of them for Latin America. I love the idea of the functionality of stable coins and the ability to transact more internationally with them, and that being much more efficient than traditional rails of international remittances. Also, for countries where you don't trust your currency because inflation is super high, Argentina, Venezuela, etc., I think that has a real function right away as well. I think there will be DeFi functionality as well of 
ability to borrow and invest in products run on the crypto side, on the finance side. Uh, I think, however, the most exciting things are things that are highly speculative right now. One would be digital identities, your ability to own your identity. Uh, the second one would be a digital wallet of your data, of your life, be it financial or health. And you control it with a key, you own it. And anyone who, who wants to offer you a product or service, you give them access to it and they can price it very easily. And in a centralized, you know, it's, it's only for you. It's decentralized, guaranteed as legit by the technology, but you control it, you give people access. So I, I think the Roberto Campos, the central banker of Brazil, actually talked about that in a crypto conference this past week. And I feel quite excited about solutions like that in that they can break the information asymmetry that always exists when companies try to assess individuals. Um, then, uh, then the NFT thing is interesting, but not in the way that we've seen so far. It's not these avatars. It's not that. I think it, it will be different things. It will be uh, intelligent NFTs that over time give you access to different services and products because you can make sure you own it. Um, and especially valuable for creators of content and music and arts. I think that's, uh, I can see that right now, but there will be other applications that I don't even see it today. And last, uh, rewards programs as well. I think you can definitely use that. And, and in the future, I don't believe companies will be crypto or non-crypto companies. I, I think that's nonsense. I think uh, crypto will be a tool utilized by companies of all types to solve specific problems that they have. Right now, it's very difficult to do that because it's such a new thing. The company, the traditional companies, Web 2.0 companies, etc., are extremely skeptical uh, about you know entering the journey of developing some crypto functionality that they don't even know if it works. So they're waiting. I understand why they're waiting. Um, they also have a dif difficult time attracting talent that understands crypto right now, but in the future, it won't be like that. Like, we don't even have the Accentures of this world that can implement a crypto project, right? If crypto is not your thing, but you want to use it, can you call a consulting guy that will implement it? <laughs> not right now, <laughs> but in the future, you probably will be able to do that. Um, so these are, these are things that cross my mind, Brian, on the, on the crypto side. I know it's important. I know, uh, I know there is a lot of innovation that will come out of it. Probably it won't matter for the next two, three years, but eventually it will matter a lot. And one of those things that long term, you got to be curious long term because you can, if you're not, you can get run over by a solution that takes into account those features. 100%. Just to wrap up here, uh, you know, to kind of close out the, the chat, uh, you know, you've worked closely with some incredible founders and obviously you're in this holding pattern, but you're going to be jumping in after this and you know, starting your own firm is you're an entrepreneur when you when you do that. So when the time comes, what are the main lessons that you've learned from those great founders that you've been able to invest in that you're going to apply to your your new your new firm uh, when the time calls? Perfect, great question. Um, first, focus. Right, you can't do all things at the same time. Like, yeah, it would be great to do all sorts of investing all over the globe, but that doesn't make any sense. You gotta know what you're good at, you gotta focus and be very disciplined about that. Over time, you gain credibility, you earn the trust of people, you can do more. But it's not 
in the beginning at all. So the focus is one. Second is super focus on talent acquisition. Like, especially investing, you're as good as your talent. You're as good as the people around you. So having a super high bar, spending time talking to people that you can, you know, you're already thinking ahead, like, oh, okay, this person might be someone great that can join a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and think strategically about talent, the same way you think about developing your business and what kind of products you're going to have. So I think that's another one that I, I take from founders. And lastly, is trying to be frugal. <laughs> uh, we, we, everyone who should starting the firm with, everyone is at risk, nobody's spending, nobody's getting paid, everyone is all in the risk. Um, and I find it beautiful because they believe in it. It also means that you're not boring like crazy, you're not desperate at all, right? Like it gives you flexibility. When you commit to a bunch of expenses, you, you, you lose flexibility. And, and it makes you do things that are suboptimal. So we want to do things that are optimal long-term, not suboptimal short-term. So that's another thing that I learned from, from great founders. Well, it's exciting to have you jump back in. And, you know, I mean, you made an incredible impact on the ecosystem, you know, during your years at SoftBank. I mean, I say there's a, a before SoftBank and an after SoftBank and, uh, in LATAM. So uh, excited to see what you and Shu Another guy that's been on the podcast is someone that I enjoy interacting with on Twitter. I think you guys are a strong team to really make this uh, this thing happen. So it's it's great for LATAM and it's great for founders. Yeah, let me just finish with, uh, I'm very grateful uh, to people like you who broke ground in Latin America when it was much harder for the VCs that were in Latin America before we came in, that we stand in the shoulders of all of you. We stand in the shoulders of Riverwood, of GA and others. We we built on top of that. It's because of you. And also, I'm very grateful for Masaf, who, you know, like it or not, is he controls SoftBank. It's mostly his money, you know? And uh, and and I would say, very, you know, he, he took a bet on a region he, he wasn't very familiar with. Super grateful for that and gave us an opportunity to build a business for him. Also to Marcelo, who... Somehow, because he's Bolivian, said, okay, there's something to do in my region. There's an opportunity here. And without Marcelo, this wouldn't have existed. So I, I just want to close by saying I'm grateful to all these people. Because without them, I, these last year, three years would not be as uh, amazing in terms of learning as they were for, for me. That's awesome. We practice gratitude at latitude all the time. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's how we start our, our Monday morning meetings is... How's your battery, and uh, and what are you th- what are you grateful for? That's that's every single uh, meeting Monday morning meeting we do with the whole team. So, thanks for coming on, and uh, excited to partner with you in the future. And, and also, thanks for being a supporter of Latitude. We have a, a roster of 125 incredibly talented investors, operators, founders, and so you know we're very community driven at Latitude, and so it's great to have you supporting the community. Yeah, as as I said before. The sabbatical year, especially, I'm here to help. Uh, I decided to help founders that ask for help or founders that I believe in and advice, free advice, not getting paid. I'm just enjoying this time. Uh, and even on the nonprofit side, I'm now joining Lala, which is an amazing organization. Awesome. So anyway. Diego came on and I interviewed him and I'm also a supporter. I love those guys. Perfect. So I did my little advertising for Diego here. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, vamos Latam, and thanks so much for your support. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Paulo Passoni, former LATAM managing partner at SoftBank. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. And check out latitude.com to find out how to open a VC-backable company with Latitude Go or apply to our fellowship program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.